Welcome to Changeable. This is episode number 272, Beyond the Interpreter. You're tuned in to Changeable with Dr. Amy Johnson. Changeable podcast is all about breaking habits, ending anxiety, and the ironic way change really works. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey there, welcome back to Changeable. Today's episode is a portion of our call with Chris Steibauer, author of No Self, No Problem. So you may have heard me um, refer to this book in the last couple of years here. Um, it's also cited in Just a Thought quite a bit. Chris was a speaker in our little School Big Change graduate community, um, I don't know, late spring, I think. And it was such a great call. So, so many people in the community had read his book and they came with excellent questions and just really eager to hear from him. Um, and he definitely didn't disappoint. I I asked some kind of uh, relatively boring-ish questions up front to kind of get the ball rolling. And we talk about, you know, what he writes about, how the left brain basically makes stuff up to interpret what's happening. And, um, you know, there's just so much, so much impact in that alone. I think people love the science side of this because it really just helps it make sense. And our mind wants that, even though this isn't about intellectual understanding or things making sense, nothing really (laughs) makes sense. Uh, There's just something that, I don't know, you know, seeing the neuroscience stuff in a really simple, logical way, um, I, I think it opens us up to just hear and feel what's beyond that. And I think you'll feel that flow and hear that flow as you listen to this conversation because we do start off um, with some of the basics, but then some of the questions that were asked were just incredible. And the conversation gets really deep and and it ends on how everything's love. So listen all the way through to the end. I won't give any more spoilers, but it was so good. So what you'll hear um, is me chatting with Chris and then we open it up to the community to ask questions, but to save their anonymity, I edited out the questions. So at a certain point, you're just going to hear Chris riffing on all kinds of seemingly random topics, but their responses to questions that were asked. And I thought about somehow adding the question, like me just saying the question or whatever, but you really don't need it. You'll figure out what the question was. And even if you don't, just to hear him kind of talking about, you know, what was asked is um, really beautiful. It was a great call. So I'll put links to Chris's books um, in the show notes in case you haven't read them and enjoy this conversation with Chris Nybauer. It feels true. We as sort of seekers and people that have looked in this direction for a while know that this stuff is true, but I think the way that you can just lay it out and give the evidence for it and really explain how it's working and why we fall for these illusions, why we feel so real why the world looks so negatively slanted so often and really just help us see like, oh my gosh, there's good reason for this. Now it all makes sense. I think that just is like a, been a magic formula. Um, and I'm sure you've gotten that feedback and seen that from people. It's It's been pretty well received. And it's, it's it, to me, the I really saves a lot for the end. Um, and it's the end that people kind of go on different paths. So the more scientific community has a difficult more difficult time with the with the final chapter when i give some hints of non-duality and um uh but so that's but then a lot of other people have embraced that they really uh you know non-duality is a it's 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 really what happens when you stop thinking yeah yeah i love that so if you had to kind of sum this up now again many of us have read it but just just in case people haven't yet like I don't know, just what's sort of the book about and what is it sort of pointing to in that, in those final chapters? If, if you really wanted to get down to the simplest uh, version of the book, it's, it's just don't believe everything you think. And the left brain is such a remarkable storytelling device. And the problem that we find ourselves in, and this is the problem I found myself in in the early 20s, where I was an absolute, complete neurotic wreck, uh, continuously from morning to night, just completely tortured by my own thoughts. And the reason so much of that suffering happened was literally because I, I, I was buying into the whole thing. 
these thoughts seemed absolutely real. They seemed um, to be accurate pointers to the future. And so that's why they have so much power, uh, at least when uh, you buy into them. And I had realized that it was me trying to escape all of this that actually empowered it even more. And a lot of people describe this as an act of surrender. And that's exactly what happened to me, where I felt like I just stopped playing the game altogether. And in the book, I try to describe that as a shift from left brain processing to right brain processing. And so what I was able to do was uh, embrace reality far beyond this little story of who I am. And all of a sudden, thinking didn't seem to be centered in my life anymore. And once thinking wasn't the center of my existence, uh, all the stories had less power. And one of the most powerful stories is the story of who we think we are. And the problem with that is, is that that, that brings along so many problems with it. I mean, anytime you do a list of my problems, the thing that should become really obvious to us is they're my problems. They're all centered around this story of who I think I am. And so the trick is, as soon as you see through the story, then all the problems fade along with it. So, um, yeah, so we, we kind of have this sense that, yes, when we're not like in all this thinking, everything gets so much easier and better. But then I think the problem we find ourselves in often is like, well, what else is there? You know, what, what else is there besides all this thinking? And, and that's like totally impossible to describe. I think maybe you could describe it, but um, it's, it's tough. But what, what I love about kind of your approach in this book is what it does is it just kind of feels like it keeps like subtracting out the truth of the thinking so that we get to just arrive at what else there is in a sense. Maybe, you know, like it just, cause you can't just say, stop thinking. If that's no. all we have to rely on and we think that's true and we think there's a me doing it, well, you're just screwed. You can't just not do it, but you can wake up to it. Like you said. So I love how you say that. Like you, had to kind of play a totally different game. You weren't going to win the thought game. You had to kind of go somewhere else. Yeah, that's, but that's the, it, a lot of this is cultural. And so I, I really enjoyed um, studying the Peter Han and they're about as close as we can get to our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Uh, they, they live very simplistically, completely in tune with nature, uh, very little materialistic needs, and uh, almost don't tell stories at all. So they're not storytellers. They're very much in reality. And so they're an excellent group of uh, people who live almost solely with the right brain, uh, being in touch with the present moment and not obsessed with the past and the future. And the most remarkable thing about this culture is they are profoundly happy. They have no psychological problems that us in the modern world have. Uh, there's no depression. There's zero anxiety. Even though they have probably the hardest physical life that all of us would find almost unimaginable. And yet their happiness stands out. And so I, I found that to be a very interesting uh, uh, piece of evidence that are overthinking, as you put it, you know, uh, you know, go back to Descartes. I mean, I think, therefore I am. And we define our entire existence by thinking and we want to be great thinkers. So naturally for us, we think we can think our way out of a thinking problem. And it never occurs to us how absurd that is. And that's when that moment of surrender I had was an insight that I had continuously tried. And that's why went off and got a degree in psychology because I, I figured just you know, there's got to be some way to get out of this thinking problem through more thinking. And the insight was really about recognizing that you cannot think your way out of a thinking problem. There are other modes of consciousness and uh, they're there. They're, they're present, but we're just not in tune with them. In fact, uh, we probably don't think as much as we think we think. And I know it sounds a little strange, but um, I could share an exercise with you. I, I, I don't, I think I put this in the workbook, but, um, and it comes from uh, Susan Blackmore. And she's as a, um, a consciousness researcher, a very famous consciousness researcher. And she has her students do an exercise where they, she doesn't believe that we're conscious as much as we think we're conscious. So she has uh, her students put post-it notes everywhere. And it says, was I just conscious? Was I just conscious? 
I think <laughs> that we confuse consciousness with thinking to a huge degree. The scientific field does this. Uh, most theories of consciousness are actually theories of thinking. And I think Susan did the same thing. So what I did is I took her exercise and I modified it a little bit. And what I have my students do is I have them take a bunch of post-it notes and just write, was I just thinking? And you put these everywhere. And what you'll start catching yourself, you'll start catching yourself. There are moments where you're not thinking. But the thinking mind is very much like that person who shows up late at a party and they think the party starts once once they get there. Like it, it's like, and it's always assessing its own um, uh, overvaluing what it's doing. And so when it goes uh, online again, it says, well, of course, you know, maybe I was zoned out. It doesn't value these non-thinking states of consciousness. And so from its viewpoint, you know, oh, I was just zoned out for a little bit, but you can get a little bit better at re recognizing these moments that are essentially what we're going for when we meditate or do mindfulness. And so we're actually far more mindful than we think we are. And that's the interesting thing about this Peter Han culture. They don't have to practice mindfulness or yoga or Tai Chi. They naturally are living in that state of non-thinking. That's their dominant mode. I love that. That makes so much sense. It's like the the mind or thinking, it thinks we can't survive without it. So it's like, oh, like, no, I've been here the whole time. I've been keeping things going the whole time. Yet I love what you're saying. And I feel like that's so true. And we talk about that a lot too. Like, like we all have these moments all the time where we meaning thought referring back to a me isn't even here or maybe thought isn't here at all. But but I love what you said. That just makes sense why those feel so hard to recognize and why it feels like they're they're not very common. When we go back to that, our, our kind of dominant mode, our our um, default mode of thinking and, and, and it's so uh, tied in with judgment. And so, of course, it's going to judge things from an incredibly biased viewpoint that, you know, I'm, all, I'm actually only conscious while I'm thinking. And, that, and you can see how much that has worked its way in to theories of consciousness. It's, 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 it's become so dominant that the field of consciousness itself hasn't realized that. And that's why we get people, I don't know, your crowd might be familiar with Daniel Dennett. And he wrote an amazing book called Consciousness Explained. It's a fantastic book on thinking. But it has nothing to say about consciousness. And, and, and so they end up concluding that consciousness is an illusion. And what I try to work out is that, look, it's thinking that's an illusion. Thinking is the, is, is the illusion that still has the power to capture us and cause suffering. And that's what illusions can do. But behind the illusion is who we really are. And that's a very difficult thing to describe in words. It's a very difficult thing to think about. That's why we'll never have a real scientific theory on consciousness. I, I, I'm guessing we won't. Uh, it would be fantastic if I'm wrong about it. But uh, consciousness is so fundamental. It's so uh, beyond words in terms of describing. It can't be taken apart. That uh, we're, we can think about thinking, but we, I, we just can't think about consciousness. Yeah. So that that natural state of just being, just being aware. Thought might arise here and there, but it's not a big identification with thought. We're not pulled around by thought. We're just like, like the, the tribe you talked about. Like, is that still, do you feel like that's, that's still just default and here and accessible for all of us all the time? I know it becomes so habitual to get identified with thought, but what do you see about that? I so when I started off the workbook, uh, I really wanted to go with this small steps approach that uh, because a lot of us, when we, when we, we get so tortured by our thinking that we start looking in spirituality for a way out. And often we're looking for uh, a really quick fix and we're looking for something that's just going to turn off the thinking mind. And it's been on and it's been culturally amplified for so many years. I actually, it's probably not a great approach. So I really like the, the, the small steps approach where you get glimpses. You start recognizing that you're not thinking as much as you think you're thinking. So you start recognizing these moments of peace. And, and as far as I can define things, I would probably say that's enlightenment. Anytime you have non-thinking consciousness, 
And that's the shift from the left brain to the right brain. That is what I would look at as enlightenment. And these moments of enlightenment, they're, they're far more common than we're aware of. Mm-hmm. But really undoing 50 years of culture, uh, depending how long, how old you are, undoing all of that with just the flip of a switch, it's not, I, I, I don't recommend that approach. And that's why I like, um, you know, when, when I would teach my class of mindfulness, I'd say, look, we're not going to sit down and try to have a mindful meal because we have too much enculturation where we've been taught to talk while we eat. We've been taught to do everything else except eat while we eat. And so I say, just have one bite. We have one conscious moment. Make the first bite conscious. And the rest, go ahead and turn the TV on and turn the news on even. <laughs> and so... um uh, and, and I found that that really works with the students because they get it. They get that one moment, and it's and those moments are really outside of time, and so it doesn't really matter if you're doing it for, for when I started meditating in my twenties as a way to counteract my neurosis. I would always time myself. Well, how long am I meditating? And I just la- I just think that's kind of funny now because. Uh, it's not how long you meditate. It, it's just the direct conscious experience of not thinking that is itself so profound, so insightful to who we truly are that I don't think you need a whole lot of it. You you, you get one mindful bite, uh, you know, and and uh, it's to me one mindful breath. You know, and so instead of doing lots of breathing for 20 minutes, my class will just do one conscious breath. And it seems to shift the vibe. It seems that it, it, it really changes our uh, um, uh, kind of the emotion that we're dealing with uh, for the rest of the day. Yeah, and it, I think it really highlights, too, that it's not like thought is the enemy here. It's just when we're so believing it and and identified with it nonstop and we have no sense that there's anything else, then it starts to go awry. But that's what I love about what you're saying. Like just the little checking in, it feels so alive and amazing and different when we do that. Even if it's just once or twice a day, you don't forget that easily. And then I think it shifts your relationship with thought. And it shifts our how much we value these states. We start because in those states, there's nothing to do. There, there are no goals. There's nothing to accomplish. So it really is a shifting from modern thinking, which is always has to have a purpose. It has to have a goal. It's trying to get somewhere and do something to a state where everything is fine, right where it is. And the most remarkable thing about this state of non-thinking is there are zero uh, problems in this state. That's why it, it, it shifts your energy and it, it's, it really uh, uh, probably shifts kind of, of, of the vibration of our being. And, and so to me, that was really enough. And, you know, but what you said was so perfect, like we get into this thing where not only are we trying to outthink a thinking problem, but we try, we see that the thinking mind is an enemy. Mm-hmm. And that's a really uh, important because uh, that's what I, I saw. I saw death as the enemy, but really what I was fighting in my 20s was this thinking mind. And I was fighting it with it, which is a very tricky thing to to recognize. And uh, that sets itself up for endless battles uh, that people will just fight for, for more. And you don't see it behaviorally. And so no one would have noticed from the outside that I had all this inner struggling going on. But uh, people are fighting these things all the time. And what is really important is, is it, again, the distancing. And so uh, I really had an approach where I had lots of exercises. It's simple things, you know, uh, that show that the thinking mind is mostly what cognitive science calls automatic processing. And so cognitive science has mapped out all kinds of stuff about the thinking mind and how it processes automatically. But they didn't get that there's something beyond the thinking mind. But you can, just by engaging in these automatic processing, like like if I just said, look, you know, I'm going to say uh, two numbers and I do not want you to complete the third number. So don't do it. And if I just say one, two, you know, you probably all heard the voice in your head say three. <laughs> so... 
Um, and you can't, so you, you could show that the, the, these are all automatic processes that mostly came, came from culture. I mean, we were biologically set up to receive them. But the fact that this Peter Hahn culture exists and they, they're not, they don't even have numbers, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of remarkable for us because so much of the thinking mind has uh, divided the world into categories. We've even categorized time. Which is very useful. I mean, it was super useful for me to know that this was 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time when I needed to come in here and do it. So it's, it's a useful tool. But we confuse it with reality. And we, and we start thinking that these things are real. You know, Mondays. I, I, I would always, my Monday lecture was always, look, there's no such thing as Mondays. Uh, it's, a, it's a useful tool. But the strange thing is, people have known for a long time that the most likely day of the week to have a heart attack is Monday. And so we take this fiction of the mind and we empower it so much that it has real world consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so is it safe to say, like, would you say the thinking and the self are kind of the same? I mean, the self is the process of thought. And when there's thinking, it's not all wrapped around the self, but a lot of it is. I would say that, um, the self is one consequence of thinking. There are, all, there are several other consequences of thinking, but thinking is such a, a basic uh, process that, to, in my view, thinking is about as close as we could get to what um, uh, the Hindus would call maya or illusion. And, uh, but that doesn't mean it's not powerful. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have real-world consequences as um, uh, something known as the Thomas theorem in sociology. And I, I think it's a wonderful way to realize how illusions can have real world consequences consequences and it's uh if something is believed to be true it is true in its consequences and so that's the trick with thinking <laughs> these these all these thoughts we have are pretty much illusory by nature i mean in the book i really focus on categories because when we think we need categories to think and it sounds pretty innocent you know something as simple as like you know oh there's my dog and we use this category of dogs to kind of organize the world. And then you realize that all dog is, is a thought. You know, really what I call my dog, it's just a conscious being that's really completely unique. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's completely unique. It's, um, uh, but because the thinking mind wants to organize with categories, it, 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 the left brain takes all these mental boxes. They're all fictions and they're actually sometimes useful fictions, but they, uh, they backfire on us and, and, they, and they create the illusion of self. And then all of a sudden there's the fear of death because, and, and you, and like you do a presentation or something and, and, and you're bombarded with all these self, what will these people think of me? Which is funny too, because we think we know other, we think we know our own thoughts. We don't, we think we know other people's thoughts. You don't, <laughs> because if you don't know your own thoughts, you don't know what other people are thinking. And that ends up having real world consequences for us. Um, uh, there's a fascinating study. I'll just try to describe it very quickly, but um, uh, people would look at faces and then they had to uh, rate them on how attractive they thought they were. And after they rated them, they would get what the group's average rating was. And the really interesting thing is that, um, one, they, they've mapped out some of the brain areas when we make a mistake. And these, these same brain areas lit up when our number didn't match the group. So like we look at non, the left brain looks at nonconformity as a mistake, which I think is funny in and of itself. Yeah. But they rated the faces a second time and they actually came to match the group more. And so that's how powerful the group was. But in this case, the interesting thing is that the group was totally fictitious. It wasn't even a real group. They'd have made the whole thing up. So what, we're, what the left brain is conforming to is what it thinks the group is doing. And so groups are just like, that's another category, but groups are just fiction, fictions of the mind. They don't exist. And I would try to describe this to my students. Like, you know, we're at a university. I'm like, I mean, you realize this university is a fiction and this university doesn't really exist. I mean, there, there's buildings, uh, you know, and uh, there are people and there's equipment, uh, but where's the university? Can you point to it? And, you know, sometimes it'd be, this is the, this is the same thing as behind the self-illusion. And I'd say, well, you know, uh, 
I, I, there's, what, if I, what does my degree mean? And I could point to this building. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but, but where's the university? And then you, the only place you can point, I just point to my left brain. I say the university exists up here. That's the only place it can exist. And then once you get that figured out, then you start realizing all these other categorical fictions, government, ownership. Ownership's an, an amazing left brain fiction. No one owns anything. <laughs> I mean, it's impossible. I mean, how could you possibly own anything? Um, there's just this collective agreement among left brains in the world that, you know, when I get out, go out to my car, no one hassles me for it. But if you went right. out to someone else's car, they you know there'd be a big problem. Um, so, so, so much of what I do with this, with these books is try to expose the basic fictions created by thinking and collective fictions that are created by collective thinking. I just love that stuff that like just kind of people have never thought about. And then it just sort of, you can't, it makes your head explode to sort of think of it, but that has so much implication. Like, I feel like that's where the left brain comes in and it's like, okay, well, what good is this? And what does this mean? And now how do I live my life? But we don't need any, that's just more left brain chatter after the head has exploded. It's like, just explode the head and then just be in this, like, I don't know what's real. And that's where you're, that's where it gets good. And that's, so there's another theorist out there and he categorizes the left brain as always being driven for certainty. But he says the right brain is actually more driven to uncertainty. It likes the idea of not knowing it. And so uh, when we have that childlike Zen mind and we say, I don't know, uh, that's way more of a right brain experience. And I think it's far more reflecting of reality because we really don't know. And so I'd have my students, uh, because these thoughts, again, what empowers them is we believe them. And I said, okay, we did this whole semester. I said, any thought that worries you, you write it out, create a thought journal. And then I give a confidence rating. How confident are you this thought will work out? And then test it. You know, so I've, okay, I'm going in for test and, and, and I think I'm going to fail my test. And then you end up getting a B or something. And they did this for most of the semester. And at the end, we collected all the assignments and we, and we tried to come up with an average rating of how good is the left brain at predicting the future? The highest rating was 50%. <laughs> wow. And for some, for, some students, for some students, it was 4%. I mean, wow. their thoughts only predict reality 4% of the time. Wow. So at best flip a coin and it and at worst you're believing lies that are totally leading you in the wrong direction. And again, that's the thing about the left brain, because it evolved as a survival mechanism, it it tends to be paranoid. It tends to it tends to fall on, on the cautious side of things. And um and so it it didn't evolve to make us happy. It didn't evolve to make us peaceful and, and with a find peace within ourselves. It evolved to replicate this 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 body and replicate these genes and that's what its mission was and when you see that so you talked earlier about um you know not seeing the thinking mind the left brain as an enemy and when you realize that the left brain is just doing its job it's just doing what it does then you can start to integrate it in, in into what it means to be human Instead of it being the adversary that we have to eliminate, you know, there's that amazing story of Joe Bolte Taylor, the neuroscientist who had a massive left brain stroke and then suddenly became enlightened. She describes it was the closest thing she could come to nirvana. But we don't really want to shut it down completely. <laughs> we don't want to shut it off. We want to uh, see, recognize when it's occasionally useful. I was, so from the Peter Hahn, this culture I've been mentioning, we could probably think about maybe an hour a day. I, I, probably that's probably still too much, but uh, we could we could get it down to um, you know far less than what, and, and then all of a sudden it becomes really useful. So in the workbook, I described the situation where um, when we, we would take my dog for a walk, uh, he has a very limited thinking mind. And, and, and so, uh, that's why he's so happy. <laughs> I mean, his, his, his thinking mind is very limited. Um, but he gets his leash, he'll get a caught around, uh, mailboxes, all this. And then he just kind of pushes it through. He doesn't realize if he just backed up, he, he could solve the problem. But any kid, any human kid would figure that out. 
So there are some amazing blessings. Uh, and then you start changing your relationship with the thinking mind, realizing the good stuff about it, that it, it does get us out of uh, problems here and there. It's just, in fact, um, uh, you can even feed it problems. And that's, that's the thing is, because our culture now has evolved to a point where the left brain's problems, it, it really has no problems to solve. It doesn't have to find food. Like when I got up this morning, I didn't have to think, okay, I got to go in the jungle and get food. Uh, but our hunter-gatherer ancestors, that, that's what the left brain evolved. So it, it would figure these things out. And so, um, you know, you can, you can do this, you know, uh, and, you know, play a little bit more like our ancestors, you know, don't, don't go shopping for a while, <laughs> see what it'd be like, you know, what would I do? And sometimes people play with this and they, they plant and, um, but, uh, you know, give, give the left brain some practical problems, some real world problems. And you'll see that it actually gets extremely, it, it, it actually gets pretty happy with it. Hmm. Wow. Closer to the left brain can come to happiness, I would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I want to ask one more question. And then if you guys want to raise your hand and ask questions or have comments, feel free. Um, you can raise your hand at any point. Um, so when it comes to um, the self and seeing, just like like you said, just like we can see that there is no university there. Uh, there is no self here. There is no solid center that we can point to that says this is the self and where it's located and all of that. Yet there's an experience of a self because there's thought that's constantly coming back and referring to it. I don't even really know how to ask this, but I'm curious just what you see in this. Like that's really profound. And I love how you say in the book, like you say that to lectures and the, everybody's like, yeah, whatever, which, which just feels like another left brain shenanigan. Like, oh, that's not that important. You know, let's look over here instead. This is like the most profound thing we'll ever hear perhaps. So that in itself is, is pretty huge, but, but sometimes that really lands like, wow, there is no center of me here. And that may, and that shifts into like a radically different living experience for the rest of one's life. And many times it stays sort of like as this interesting intellectual fact that doesn't go deeper. So like, what do you see about that? You mentioned earlier for yourself about surrender, but what do you, if you have any thoughts about that, like what's the difference between people who can kind of keep this mental and then people who really shift into the truth of this? When you get to, so that's what I sort of saved the last chapter for, because it's a great question, you know, a kind of a practical question, but also a more profound question too, in the sense that, you know, Kind of have this experience, and and then the self does come back on, and uh, and you might even find may even find yourself worrying about something trivial, and then laughing about it a little bit. Um, you know, how do you integrate the whole experience? And I think there's a there's a there's a deeper um, process going on here because we. So first you get caught up in the thoughts and then you create a self and then you become terrified of death and you become embarrassed at moments and then you worry about what's going to happen to the self if it gets sick and and um, and then you try to elevate your self-image. And then there's this recognition that all of this is just a fabricated story. And then that shifts things a little bit. But then there's a really interesting experience that you realize that all this all this stuff going on in the thinking mind it's also a creation. And where does it come from? And I could describe it in one way as, well, you know, it, 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 it's an evolutionary uh, mechanism that helps us survive as, as human beings. But I think there's something a little bit more profound going on that we can really get a look at through um, some basic concepts in Hinduism. This process this this idea of leela this that the 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 consciousness is playing a game the consciousness plays hide and seek with itself mm-hmm. and um and that to me has been a very in, a very interesting experiential way to get at how the what 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 the human existence is really about so we are fundamental consciousness but we 
play this game of being an individual separate self, and we even play the game of suffering because it's so much what we're not that it gives the universe or consciousness a very interesting experience, an experience it could never have without us playing along with it. And, and so uh, that's when it gets a little more into non-duality. And, um, but those experiences, uh, the, the, again, they're very interesting non-dual experiences. Like Joe Bolte-Taylor, as soon as her left brain shut down, she was like, there was no place where I ended and the rest of the universe began. Mm-hmm. And so you see this separate self, completely fictional. But then you have to realize, like, you know, we're creating these illusions and, and, we're, and we're falling for them at the same time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I tried all kinds of different things um, totally unsuccessfully. And, and then I ended up getting into Tai Chi, which for me, moving meditation helped a little bit. It was a little easier for me to do moving meditation. When I taught the meditation class, I kind of offered it up like a buffet, you know, like, look, here's, here's a hundred ways you can do this and all the different manifestations meditation comes into find what works for you and and so i I was amazed by the individual differences where you know some people you know small group of the class would like yoga other people hated it and then other people would like like box breathing i do box breathing three people were in love and like i found my technique and if i could just do box breathing you know this is going to help me and so uh you know the first thing i think is just to really just explore and 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 do just about every form of meditation and mindfulness i th- we have this interesting way of separating meditation and mindfulness to me they're both simply not thinking they're 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 getting back into conscious experience um rather than thinking about reality, you're consciously experiencing it. And, um, and then once I uh, got a little bit better at experiencing reality directly, rather than thinking about it all the time, that was a huge help with mindfulness and meditation. But I found, and I, do, I still do Tai Chi, and I, I really, uh, I, I would teach the class certain moves in Tai Chi, but... Um, my formal practices in mindfulness and meditation, I wouldn't call them formal practices. I would say it's more an orientation to my experience of being a human being. And so uh, I, for me, meditation is going for a walk. And, it's, and then you can really get good at noticing the thinking world versus being conscious. And... I'm not saying that thinking isn't conscious. It's just a very low vibrational form of consciousness, probably the lowest vibrational consciousness we probably have. And, um, and they have completely different feels to them. And so you can go for a walk and you can start hearing a voice in the head and, you can st- and then you're like, okay, I'm in that world. And then shift it to, for me, it's always the sound of birds. I, I just love birds singing. And that to me is a very meditative thing. And so I can go for a meditation walk uh, or, or, or um, you know, whatever I'm doing, whether driving, you know, meditation is one of these things. It's always accessible, whatever we're doing. All you have to do is do what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, you know, simple, but it's not easy for us, as they say. And, um, and, and so what I've done uh, is uh, think of every day, like, you know, how much of this day am I going to be in reality? And, you know, and then I enjoy the, the, the thing about being in reality rather than being in the thinking mode is not only is it just absent of problems, but there is a, it's not happiness. I think happiness is a left brain concept, but I would use the word joy. And there is a energy of joy in simple conscious experiences. And I think that's why a lot of us, we get up in the morning and we have, you know, our tea or coffee. And that's our moment of, you know, when you taste coffee, you're in the real world. That's the real world. And then we go off into work and work politics, office politics, you know, the whole world of abstract thought. And But we need to start our day here with one, you know, the conscious immediate experience. Um, and, um, and that's that, again, to go back to that, uh, the Peter Hahn group, uh, the Daniel Everett 
was the uh, linguist who studied with them. And, and the way he put it is, this is a group of people who lived in the immediacy of experience. So they lived meditation. That's probably why they were so happy because consciousness fundamentally is love. It's joy. And so when we stop thinking, sometimes we're overcome by this, how, how, how the fundamental reality is so um, much different than the reality that we've conjured up in, in these left brain stories. And, it, and it's so uh, um, absolutely peaceful as it is that there, there's, there's, that's why we say, well, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to change. What would you change? Workbook. So what, what I did with the workbook is so we've got cognitive science and that encompasses psychology, but also sociology and philosophy. And, and we've got this remarkable set of data about the thinking mind. And they've documented about 300 or more biases and errors that the thinking mind is prone to. And so we can learn those errors, things like heuristics and things like, you know, um, the informal fallacies ad hominem and, you know, uh, uh, and we, we, can, we can actually learn from these. And those are all the things where the mind uh, is, is just blatantly wrong. And again, the mind, the, the thinking mind only had to be right just enough to get us get its DNA to the next uh, generation. That's, you know, it didn't have to be perfect. Now, when we get beyond that, and it's, so it's, so remember a little earlier, I was talking about what it feels to think, like the thinking mind has a certain vibration. Consciousness really has a completely different feel to it. In that same way, we can differentiate between when we are thinking and very prone to mistakes where the biases come in and, um, you know, um, really all, all, all the biases of, of sexism, race, these are all mistakes of the, of the thinking mind and, and they can create many problems. And so when we make those mistakes, it, we, we, we can pick up on the feeling because we're in the thinking mode. When we're in the consciousness mode, it really is such a profoundly different experience that it opens up true creativity. So when I talk about consciousness, our foundation of who we are as, as beings, that is the only source of true creativity. And, the, and, and consciousness has created everything, even including the thinking mind. And I know it's kind of tough to really put that in perspective, but... Um, uh, so let me let me give you a, just a, a story that maybe can give you what I'm talking about here. So when I actually did that first book, so I wrote the first book, it was self-published. And then I wanted to, I started searching for different publishers because I wanted to sell it to, you know, a traditional publisher. And I really wasn't thinking, I, I really was in what I would call consciousness mode. And I was looking through different, and I found the perfect publisher. And, I'm, and I just had an absolute metaphysical certainty. I'm like, this is going to work. And my daughter came over. She was only eight. And I remember we held hands and I just clicked the send button. And I'm like, it's done. This, this publisher this is going to be a done deal. Because I could just, it, it, that was genuine, genuine intuition. It wasn't the thinking mind making an error. But the weird thing is, a couple months later, I get a rejection letter from him. And I thought, well, that's weird because... You know, that into, I've lived my life with that kind of knowing when the mind is prone to errors and recognizing that, but also tapping into this very broadband consciousness that is, you know, synchronicities and, and really interesting mystical experiences. And it's never failed me. It's always been absolutely right. So I was confused metaphysically. And it was about a year later, I, I get this text message from the same publisher who had no idea I even submitted the book. And he, was, he, he just by chance found this book and, and he, he thought it had a lot of mistakes and needed some work, but he's like, let's publish it. So he reached out to me. And, I, and that, that was so reaffirming for, for this, this kind of, you know, because it might, that, that intuition of consciousness, it had always been absolutely right. And it's a, but it that may take longer than you think. And, and that's the thing is, so the, the left brain puts all these like 
okay, well, you know, this feels right. And I, and I, and, and you have this, you know, it's always leap and the bridge will appear. That's the way the right brain works because it's in tune with a greater metaphysics of reality. That's why, you know, when people talk about, uh, manifestation and they talk about, um, you know, uh, so, so many paradoxes with things like gratitude. And as soon as you're grateful for, for what you have, all of a sudden, in a, abundance, just a, like you cannot, money just comes from nowhere. And you're just like, I didn't, I don't even need the money. You know, it's like, I was absolutely happy with everything I had, which is the exact opposite of when you go into it in the left brain mode. And you're like, here, I've got to come up with a plan. I've got to make money. And anytime you come up with that, it just seems like it backfires because it's a, this law of opposition of how the left brain works. But fundamentally, it comes down to a completely different feel. And then when we, we talk about feelings, it's important to remember that their feelings existed 600 million years before we started thinking. And just let that like sink in for a little bit. Like six, we were not humans, but creatures were feeling emotions 600 million years before we started thinking. And once we started thinking, the thinking mind kind of kidnapped and, and took over emotions. It started dominating and controlling our emotions. But if you can get back to that pure form of consciousness, you'll be open to emotions uninfluenced by thinking. And they're incredibly wise, incredibly um, on, 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 the, on the mark. And they, they just seem to never make a mistake. No, time completely does not exist at all. <laughs> I mean, time, I mean, physics, and the interesting thing is the thinking mind has come to some of these same conclusions. And, and so when we look at, at physics, they've come to the same conclusion. In fact, there's a, um, uh, a theory of everything and, and it doesn't even include time in the equation. And so that tells us that the physicists are coming to these same conclusions that the mystics do. Um, but it's still a useful illusion. And, but, but you, you know, and you, and you play with it, whatever level you feel comfortable. So for me, I've, I've never missed a podcast interview. I've, I've almost missed them many times. So, so my, my, my kind of playful way with time has a lot of near misses, but I, I, I have never, uh, missed anything yet. Um, and so it sounds like, you know, for you, it's like, you know, you're probably never late. And so you just, you have a much, you know, and, and there's, you know, probably some very good things to that. Um, but fundamentally you, you, I mean, when we go come to the test, like this is time real, what's our test of reality and consciousness, direct immediate experience. We say, well, and that's why the self is an illusion. You can't consciously experience who you are as far as the thinking mind is concerned. You can't, you know, this Chris identity is, you know, uh, I can't touch your, you know, it's, it's beyond my direct experiential ability. And so it doesn't exist. And it's the same thing with time. You can't touch time. You can't, uh, you can't perceive time directly. And so in that sense, it's just something that consciousness made up. So it could even get further lost in the illusion of being what it isn't. So the thinking mind isn't always problematic to everybody. There's lots of people who have a relationship with the thinking mind and, you know, it, it gets where it works. And, um, you know, even someone like, you know, Albert Einstein, who probably had a, you know, remarkable thinking mind. But from what I understand about his psychological health, he seemed to have a pretty meaningful, joyful existence. Although uh, it is also interesting that uh, Einstein regardless of how powerful his thinking mind is, he also knew when to walk away. You know, he always had these quotes about, you know, I give thought a lot and then I swim in the ocean of emptiness and suddenly an idea comes to me. So mm -hmm. he, he certainly recognized that, but, um, you know, it, 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 so I, I was at a conference once. I'll share a little story about, uh, chatting with Deepak Chopra, which probably most of you are familiar with. And I had a question for him because it's one of the questions I always like to ask. And I, because the whole conference was about non-duality. And I said, well, you know, if everything is non-dual, which is an interconnected holistic one, why does it play this game of duality? And I had a most interesting experience because he started talking and I can't even remember a word he said. <laughs> like it, I shut off from language mode and it's like, he looked right through me and he's like, knock it off, Chris. You know exactly why you're playing this game. It was like, almost like a tel 
telepathic message. And it really, you know, really hit me because it's like, yeah, you know, of course we know, but I can't think about it. I can't put that into words. Um, You know, that's why I sort of ended the, uh, uh, the workbook with this metaphor of an escape room. You know, we do these strange things, you know, we, we, we go into these escape rooms, we pay money and people put clues everywhere. And then we, we try to get our way out. And in that same sense, that's what we're doing with our human existence. We are eternal uh, consciousness, but we get lost in these little human identities. But we leave ourselves clues, like this gathering of all of us. This is a, a clue, a breadcrumb we left ourselves. And when we're ready, we'll find our way home if, if that's what we want. And, and, you know, maybe we're having too much fun playing the game. And and I and I know neurotic suffering can feel at the time, it, it it feels like a horrific punishment, but it's like a bad dream. And when we wake up from it, we'll, re- we'll you know we'll recognize that it was all illusory. And so, you know, for some of us, maybe we're just flirting, you know, with enlightenment a little bit. So we're we're you know we kind of like the escape room. We're having so much fun, and it, so we don't really want to figure it out. And so it's not so much like, you know, why did it happen to me? But why doesn't it happen to everyone else? And I think for some of us, we're just having so much fun playing human, you know, playing, you know, office politics. And and and, and, and it doesn't seem like it because it feels like suffering. But, uh, you know, that's the, that's the hide and seek the universe is playing with itself. And some of us get lost a little bit deeper. And, um, and it's always important to remember that... Uh, you know, that's our foundation, you know, and, 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 and to dis- disidentify with thinking is to recognize like, you know, you know, I'm the one who, who's dreaming the dream. And, and, and if you recognize that, then you can recognize that uh, um, you, you'll absolutely wake up when you want to. And uh, I mean, that's, I, and it has nothing to do with the personality that masquerades around as Chris. It has, Chris had nothing to do with it. Whenever I do a podcast, whenever I write, I've learned to put my thinking mind and say, look, if my thinking mind has anything to do with this, it's going to be terrible. <laughs> my thinking mind is not a good writer. My thinking mind um, doesn't answer. So like when people ask questions, like I'm not answering, like it's not me answering these questions. Uh, you know, I just step aside and I just, I'm watching it just as much as you are. And so um, it's, there is, there's a greater intelligence out there. And I think one of the most important questions you can ask yourself and ponder is, you know, do I trust the universe? Which is to say, do I trust consciousness? Do I trust the foundation of who I really am? Do I trust it? If you trust it, then nothing can go wrong. I actually did a, so I have a YouTube channel and I actually did a video on something very similar because what I do in these books is mostly point out that a lot of the problems that we have are problems that we make up and and we invent. And, and if you can catch on to that, you'll recognize that most of the problems in your life are not what you thought they were, or they actually are what you thought they were in a sense that thoughts just made them up. But there are some deals we make in this human existence that we simply cannot avoid suffering with. And we make the deals consciously. And I think we make these deals bravely and with courage because consciousness is ultimately very brave and courageous in, in the worlds and uh, that it constructs. And, and so loving, and, and it could be your kids, it could be your dog. When we love, we are going to feel loss when something happens to them. There's no way out of that deal. And so I love my kids. And if something happens to them, there's no trick on the planet that I'm going to be able to get out of suffering. But I've made a conscious deal because that, you know, to, to love is to, to be courageous enough to recognize that when they're gone, you're going to endure the suffering that is going to, um, come along with the entire package. And so there's this, uh, old story about this stone Buddha. And so, you know, we could all be stone Buddhas in the sense that we disconnect with humanity so much that nothing bothers us. But I'm not sure that's where most of us want to go. And so we do want to recognize our illusory problems, but some of the experience of being human 
is to love. And there's no way around it. When you love, there's going to be loss. And you're, and you're, and to, to, to feel that loss that you're feeling right now is to, to embrace how much love there was and, and how, on how brave you were, you know, how, how courageous it is to actually experience this kind of love because it all comes with a unmistakable, unavoidable cost that we're going to suffer from it. You know, and, and even something s- small happens with, with my kids. Uh, it, you, you feel it. You're, you're connected. And so, um, I would say that, um, su- suffering from loss points to how true and genuine the love was in the first place, uh, whether it's our kids or pets, um, and 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 it's still a choice that that we make to 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 be to do to engage in something so uh, risky, uh, rather than being a stone Buddha, which in which we just get cold and we and we, and we disconnect. These is a game of consciousness, pretending to be what it's not. And you know, I don't know if you can see on the back here. I got a. It's one of my favorite pictures from um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It's um, Louise Flesher. And uh, she's, if you can kind of see, she's in her, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's a classic. And, and she plays a really manipulative character in it. And, and the thing I love about the photo, and it's actually signed by her, is that she has a real genuine warm smile, even though she's in mm-hmm. the nurse ratchet outfit. And that's always served as a reminder to me that no matter how far we get lost, it's, there, there's still a joyful, loving consciousness that's just playing a game, pretending to be what it's not. And so no matter how far off we get, and we've gotten far off, humans, the 20th century, when you consider that, uh, you know, so we've considered the process of thinking. And, you know, we've, our ancestors used it sparingly, and then we used it more. And then 20th century seemed to be like this escalation of thought. You know, it was the birth of so many new thought systems from nationalism to fascism. I mean, all these things happened just in the 20th century. And and of course, 20th century, we saw the greatest loss of life ever due and the greatest suffering ever due to the thinking mind. And so we've had times where we've gotten really, uh, we've been so much what we're not. And, we, and we've gotten so far off track. And, um, and that can seem very, depressing and it can seem very um troublesome and worrisome but if we realize that where it's coming from and and you know we're the ones playing the dangerous game and so we're, we're just seeing how far out we can get um and and sometimes the further out you get the deeper you go into peace and 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 i found that so many times in my life where the if i if it was the suffering and the neuro the, the more the suffering and the, neuro- the neurosis, the greater the peace that resulted from it. It's like, you know, if the, if it's super dark, it, it's a super yeah. dark night, the morning seems even more bright. Yeah. I wish my ego could take credit for it. Um, but I've, everything I've written down, every, it, it's, it comes from a mysterious place that my thinking mind can never really appreciate. And so I think of it as um, just, a, you know, it's a, just these breadcrumbs that we've left ourselves. And so for some reason, these come to me and I write them down and uh, I've had this really fortunate opportunity to share it with people. And, um, I, you know, but I just get the royalties for it. I, I didn't do any of it. <laughs> so I get the, you know, um, but uh, so it's, um, it's been a very, it's been a fascinating path. Um, how how this has worked its way into my life and how um you know this sort of when i when i when i say do you trust the universe and uh, you know the ego can't and so what we're really talking about is consciousness recognizing itself and that's when we when we say we love each other you know, um, like this, I've been introduced to so many new writers and it's fascinating to me how often at the end of a conversation, someone I've never even met in real life will say, I love you. And what's happening there is we're recognizing that, you know, our true self is the consciousness behind all the thinking. And so, but it gets lost in the separation. And then when it recognizes itself, it immediately knows itself as love. 
And, and so um, those kind of connections have become a whole different path. And, and, and so the universe wants me here doing this. And, and so that's what I'm doing. Have you ever tried breath work? Ever since my very first breathwork journey with my friend, Scott Kelly, I've been hooked. Breathwork takes you deep into your body beyond the noise of your mind. It allows you to let go of and lean into emotion and really feel and release what's there. Breathwork stabilizes the nervous system so you can have new insights, clarity of mind, and you can feel the joy that's already present. Breathwork has become a huge practice in my life and I'm super excited to introduce it to you. Scott Kelly and I will be hosting an introduction to breathwork workshop including a guided breathwork journey so you can experience this amazing practice yourself. The workshop is Saturday, October 28th, and you can go to dramyjohnson.com slash breathwork to see all the details and register. We'd love to have you there.